Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. I want to tell you a little bit about kind of behind the scenes for me as a pastor. I've, I was a youth pastor for nine years. I've been your senior pastor 19 years now. I'm still 25, by the way. And um, it, no, it does age you. Uh, but, but, you know, there's very little that causes me stress. Very little that causes me anxiety. Uh, except for one area. Now, pastors will often talk about in the old times, the ABCs, attendance building and cash. And you'd go to conferences and talk about how many people you got, like you have anybody in the buildings. And it's like that to me, those are ridiculous things to talk about. I'm glad you're here, by the way. Attendance is good. You know, otherwise, Aaron and I are just, you know, leading our own thing. So I'm glad you're here. Don't be offended by that. But whether a lot of people show up or not, that's not our issue. That's not our point. That's what God does. We're excited about that. Never stressed about attendance, even Labor Day weekend, you know, buildings, buildings are just buildings. We have been in this building coming December 10 years now, and that's a blessing. It's been huge, but it's taken a lot of work and a lot of costs to fill this building out. We finish um, that last section, the kitchen and cafeteria, the first weekend of December. We're opening it up, 10-year anniversary for that. We've got a parking lot going out there. All told, that's just shy or just about a million dollars, but it's pretty much all in the bank. We've been saving, we've been giving. So I don't stress about cash. I don't worry about attendance building and cash. Those aren't the things I concern myself with. I never lose sleep over that because I'm not in charge anyway. But the one thing that does cause me stress... The one thing that does cause me anxiety, the one thing that causes me a little bit of fear inside is when our staff is not doing well, when a pastor is, is struggling. A couple of years ago, a number of years ago, uh, we had several pastoral staff that were struggling relationally, spiritually, physically, and I poured in. I poured in hours and meetings and counseling, uh, days and days of uh, you know, times together to talk about these things. Months, weeks, it just seemed like forever. And, and because that's happened throughout the years, I, I, I'm kind of used to it, but this happened all at once. And I remember that it was so overwhelming that I was lying in bed one night. I had gone to bed and I woke up within an hour. That's one of the things that I, I have happened to me in my, my life when there's stress like that is I don't sleep well at night. And I, I really wasn't sleeping well at all. And I went to bed, laid down, woke up, and my, just my brain starts going. I start praying for them. And I just feel this uh, oppressive, you know, this pressure of, I know I can't do anything about it. I'm helping as much as I can. But, God, they need to make some decisions. And, and I don't know which way it's going to go. And how's that going to hurt them and their families? How's it going to hurt the church? This is out of my control, you know. And so I'm, I'm praying about this. And, and all of a sudden, this fear rises up inside of me. 
like I hadn't known before. Now, of course, what do I have to be afraid of, right? What do I have to be afraid of? Well, it felt, it was huge. It was oppressive. In fact, the fear rose up to the point of panic. I was lying in bed. I was panicking. And I've never had a panic attack before, but that was the closest thing. My heart was racing. I felt like I was going to die, you know, just going to explode, burst out of my chest. And I'm in this moment, and I, I thought back to when I was uh, with my wife on a vacation in Oahu, in Hawaii there, at Hanama Bay. If you've ever been there, it's a nature preserve. It's a beautiful little coral place with wonderful fish. And I love to film underwater, so I had a camera uh, in a bag specifically for that. And I'd already looked at the signs. I knew where I should go and shouldn't go. And yet I'm underwater filming. And as I'm watching this fish and following this fish, there were some eels I was staying my distance from. Uh, But I was enjoying the beauty of what was going on underwater. Well, because of that, I was focused more on the fish than where I was and where I was supposed to be. And most importantly, not supposed to be. And all of a sudden, in a moment, I realized that this wave was pushing me in a direction. I didn't know which direction. I didn't know what was up or down. All of a sudden, it just forced me and it knocked me sideways. And then my mask filled up with water and I couldn't grab onto anything. I was being pulled out to see. I had not paid attention to the signs. I had paid attention to the fish and I was in trouble. And as my mask fills up with water, you know, I've been trained to clear my mask. I know how to do things. I know how to calm myself, but none of it's working. And I start to panic. And as this water is rushing over and pushing me, um, I'm reaching for anything I can. Nothing helps. And I panicked in that moment. Now there's only been two times in my life when I thought I was going to die. Like really, really, truly thought I was going to die. Uh, 10, 17 years ago, actually, my wife and I were in Egypt. We were in Cairo. We decided to take an overnight train ride down to Luxor to see the Valley of the Kings and Queens, King Tut and all that stuff. And we decided to do this. Unfortunately, I had been staying in a hostel before that. And I had read one of the books about the scariest places to live and, you know, die in, in the world. And one of them was the train ride from Cairo to Luxor. It's like I already bought my ticket because the Muslim Brotherhood wanted to overthrow the nation cause chaos. They would stand there in the fields and they would just fire their you know, machine guns into the train as it passed by. Year two before that, uh, 40 plus German tourists were lined up in Luxor against one of the temples and shot dead. And so I'm already having enough fear, right? And I read about this and I get on the train and I decide to go to sleep. It's going to be okay. Just wake up in the morning. You'll be down there. I get up to go to the restroom before I go to bed. And as I walk in, the train stops and a group of men Totally stereotypical on my part, but I was pretty ignorant. A Muslim guy is dressed up in the garb with these big black bags, huge bags, and they set them down. I go to the restroom, I come out, one of them is opening the bags, filled with AK-47s. I know what a Kalishnikov looks like, and they are everywhere, okay? Now, what I didn't realize is, you just carry your AK if you're going to 7-Eleven there. Everybody carries stuff like that. I didn't know that, you know? And, and I panicked. I'm like, they're going to kill everybody on the train. And as I go back to my seat, I sit down next to Mary Beth. I don't tell her anything, of course, you know, because she can die in her sleep and not know. But at least I'll do the stress and worry, you know, for us. I see the guy in front of me as he gets up. He's got a he's got a nine millimeter. I'm like, great. Everybody's going crazy here. I engage with him about his gun and he goes, oh, he's a secret police and this and that. And he goes, oh, yeah, those those guys are fine. Maybe I'm like, well, thank you. Are you going to sleep or can I sleep now? I, I went to sleep that night thinking I might not live. Truly, I, I, it was the first time I ever thought I was going to die. But that night when I was lying in bed and panic was rushing over me, it was exactly the feeling I felt when I was in Hanama Bay, when my mask filled with water 
and I had no way to grab onto anything and I was being rushed out to sea. That was a time I thought I was going to die. But it reminded me of what I did back then in the water. I made a decision to stop panicking. I got a hold of myself. I started to breathe. I cleared my mask. And even though I was being pushed out, I was able to swim, get out of the current, and I was able to finally stand up and make it back to my wife. But I got to tell you, I was an emotional basket case because I thought I was going to die. And that night when I was in bed with the panic rising up inside of me, it was just like that. But I decided to do that night what I had done in the water, and that was don't panic. What does God say about this? And I began to quote one of the Psalms that had been so meaningful to me years prior that now was my lifeblood. It was my only way to hold on. And it was simply these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Why should I be afraid? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. I quoted Psalm 27. I went through it so many times and I drifted off to sleep that night. Now, I couldn't really change somebody else's life. I couldn't really mandate anybody do certain things. I have zero power as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor. People think I have power. I got, no, I got nothing. You know what I mean? I have a title, you know. But I can only influence people. And I sadly couldn't influence those pastors for the good. And, and life fell apart for them. But I learned an important lesson that night. Is that life could fall apart for me if I didn't cling on to the truths of God's word. And even though fear was overwhelming in my life and panic was taking me to a point I'd never been in before, I was going to be okay. I was going to be okay because God promised I was going to be okay if I put my trust in him. Now, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Psalm 27, page 425. And I know you wrestle with this because we live in a culture of fear. We live in a culture where we're just surrounded by the bad news, the cable news. We've got it on our devices. We've got it everywhere we go. My wife and I were talking about this on a run this last week. You know, and the fact is, is that we know now instantly what's happening on the other side of the world where it, it didn't affect us like that years ago when I was a kid. Man, when I was a kid, mom would send us out to play. We'd ride bikes. We'd go everywhere. We'd do whatever we wanted to. We'd hang out with friends. We knew when it was time to come home when the lights went on and the street lights, right? And everybody was okay. Yeah, things happen. But if you were to take a look at how the world presents itself today, we're living in the worst time ever. That's not statistically true. You know, statistically crime is down. It is. You wouldn't know that by watching the news because they sensationalize everything. Uh, we are living in a safer environment than we ever had before. But this whole culture of fear, the stranger danger, lends everybody to think that the person that they don't know is going to attack them and abuse them. And you know what? We need God's word more than ever in this age. We need Psalm 27 more than ever in this age. And I want us to open that up and take a look at it. Psalm 27 begins the first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? Now, a couple things about David. We've already seen this through the Psalms. He's, he's just a master of the metaphor. He's just, he just paints pictures with his words. That may not relate to us. It may not make sense to us. Let me help you. First of all, he calls God by his personal name. Again, if you ever see the name of the Lord, all caps, lower caps, that mean, or small caps, that means it's the personal name for God, Yahweh. The personal name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This is my name. This is what I will be known forever. I am that I am, Yahweh. And so he calls him that. 
because he's close. He, he doesn't call him that if he were distant. You know, he would call him like the Lord Almighty, the God of hosts, you know, the great and powerful out there distant. But he's the great and powerful close God. And David knows him as a very intimate God. He calls him by name and he says, the Lord is my light. Now, we take light for granted here. We have light everywhere, unless you're in the eclipse, you know, uh, the totality. But light is everywhere. It's nothing for us to pull out a flashlight. I have more light on my iPhone, just turning it on, than the average person had in the ancient Near East. If you were here for the Psalm 119, I had a little lamp and it was just a little flicker, and it's like a bick. It just lighted. That's all they had. But they learned to trust in what they had. We have light everywhere. We, we're so, I mean, we just, we just turn on floodlights. We have light pollution everywhere. It would be hard for us to find a place in the world today where we could go where there's just no light. All they had was the sun and the moon and the stars. And so what David is saying is that God lights up my darkness. God lights up the dangerous places. Think about it. David is being pursued by enemies. We'll see in a bit. And what he needs to see is the light. He needs to know that he's protected. So he says, Yahweh, my friend, my God that I worship, that I know face to face, he is the one that lights up my darkness. Very important. He is my salvation, he says. Now, we throw that term around in a spiritual sense. It's very real. But back then it was physical. It was very real for them because physically they needed salvation. David needed to be saved from his enemies. Historians tell us, Bible scholars think that this psalm was written in that time period when David was called to be king, anointed to be king by the prophet Samuel, but didn't get to be king yet. So decades go by where there's another king still, King Saul, and Saul is a maniac. He's a lunatic intent on destroying David because he knows David's going to take his throne. He knows that God has left him and moved to David, and so he wants nothing less than David's head on a platter. And so he puts a death wish out for David. He, he puts a bounty on his head, and so anybody could bring David's body back or his severed head back and get money on it. David knows that he needs to be saved. He needs to be rescued from these enemies. He needs God to be the one who saves him. Now, for us, spiritually, that's still very true. But as we enter into the New Testament time and discover Jesus, we see that that is also spiritually true. That you and I have fallen short of God's perfect standard. That we are actually enemies of God, the Bible says. We are having our backs turned to God, fighting him every chance we have. And that we think that we are in control of our lives. But all that is just sin, rebellion and ignorance and refusing to acknowledge God. And so we need salvation. We need spiritual salvation. We need that relational salvation. And so God brings Jesus, dies on a cross, pays for this sin. We can enter into now a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's salvation, my friends. But the salvation that David talks about is very, very real physical salvation. And he says, the Lord Yahweh is my light. And he's my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The word afraid here in the Old Testament is the word uh, for dread. Think about dread, this overwhelming, oppressive pressure of fear. That's what David is saying. Why should I experience that? In our world, in our culture, that's synonymous with anxiety. And that word is to be strangled and to be squeezed out. And so fear and anxiety, it's this pressure, it's this noose around our neck that squeezes the life out of us. And he says, why should I let that overtake me? Because I have the Lord as my friend. He's my light. He's my salvation. And then he said, he's my fortress. 
I don't know if you've built any fortresses lately, lately. Fortress of Solitude, maybe Fortress of Legos. I don't really know. You know, Lincoln Logs, but that doesn't relate to us. But in that day and age, if you're out in the wilderness, if you're out on the run and you see this marauding band of men coming over the crest of the hill intent on your destruction, you've got to run. You've got to hide. Where do you hide in a desert? Where do you hide in the wilderness? Well, you hide in a fortress. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the law of Moses, God commands Moses to set up six cities called cities of refuge. And it's really strategic because there's three on the east of the Jordan, three on the west of the Jordan, two in the north, two in the middle, two in the south. And these are cities of refuge, a fortress you could run to if you accidentally kill someone. Okay, And there's very strict laws about that. You're out there working in a field, you accidentally strike someone, stop, drop, and run. Okay, Not roll, run as fast as you can to the nearest city of refuge where they will close the gates and protect you until the judge comes and can determine the case. And if you did it without any malicious act, if it was an accident, you are safe and secure in the city of refuge in the fortress. David understood this. David understood what a fortress was like. Many times over in the Psalms, he calls God a strong tower. In that day and age, there were fortresses of safety and David knows what it's like to run to that place and be protected because that's how he sees God. I will run to my God and my God will cover me and protect me. So that's what he calls him. So why should I tremble when evil people come to devour me? That's, that's picturesque. When my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, this is what he's feeling. Though this anxiety, though this stress, though these very real things are going on, my heart will not be afraid. And then he says, even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. I needed these words that night because I had some very real fears. Had some imagined fears too. You know, we're pretty good at that, right? Our real fears, some of you have very real fears today. Uh, their financial fears, you don't have enough. Okay? Their relational fears, things are breaking apart. There are fears about the future, you don't know what it holds. There are fears about other people, some people have actually turned against you. Those are real fears. Those are fears that you and I face all the time. Those are real. And we also have imaginary fears. The what ifs, right? We're really good at that. Some people are much better than others, unfortunately. And they're like, the what if this and what if that and what if this happens? We just let this anxiety just kind of roll up into us and get huge. So let me ask you honestly, how many of you recently have had a real or imagined fear? Raise your hand. Okay, somebody in the last service raised both hands. I'm like, wow, you're, we have counselors standing by, you know? See, the fact is, you and I are in this real world, which means we have real problems. Just like David. Ah, they're different, but they're just like David. Maybe our enemies are not people, but they're something else. Maybe the dread that overtakes us, the strangulation we feel, doesn't relate in the same way that he did, but it's still very real to us. And we feel oppressed and pressured by this. It could be physical. It could be emotional. It could be spiritual. We could be attacked in so many ways. And the truth is, is this is the reality for our lives on this earth. And so what would it take for us to have this perspective? The Lord is my light and my salvation. He's my fortress. Well, it helps if you continue on in the psalm because we get to see more about David in this. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most 
is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Now, the word temple there is confusing to us because there is no temple. The temple was built by David's son, Solomon. But the idea is it's this place of presence. We call it the tabernacle. Usually that's what it's called or the tent of meeting. God lived in a tent back in the Old Testament. And the, the place of Shiloh, it's what it's called. The tent was set up with the, the, the place for the priests, the holy place, the most holy place. And inside of that was the ark where the presence of God hovered and dwelt over that. God was in the midst of his people. And David is just saying, I want to be there. That's really what I want most. I'm out in the wilderness. I'm in my own tent, but I want to be in God's tent. Now, there's some really cool things here when you think about this. The one thing I want, this is what I really want, is I just want to hang out with God all my life. I mean, I just want to be with God. Now, the cool thing about this is, is when you think about this, and if you're from the ancient Near East 4,000 years ago, anybody? No. Okay. Um, A tent was really important. Because if you're out in the desert, in the wilderness, it's your shade, it's your place, it's where you keep your provisions, your family, maybe your animals at night. Uh, it's a little bit of safety. It's not much, but it's a little bit. Now, in that time period, hospitality was absolutely crucial to the social structure. That if anybody came by, you were obligated to bring them into your tent and care and provide for them. The Bible commands us about hospitality in the New Testament. We're supposed to invite people in our homes. We don't know what to do with that. that that's like kind of weird, you know, invite strangers into my home. You know what the word hospitality is? This whole idea of being hospitable to a stranger is uh, uh, actually literally like a strange person, okay? And you know some of them, right? You know, if you don't, you are the strange person. Um, and, and, and someone that's just very radically different from you, We are commanded to bring them into our lives, maybe even into our home to care for them in that moment of need. And in that culture, hospitality was life or death. You can see it in the life of Abraham when Abram's there with his tent and the people walk by, come to find out it's God, right? And angels, he invites them in, he prepares a meal, he kills an animal, he bakes the bread and he serves them that. That was the provision that you were required to do. But it was also about protection because when you lived in someone's tent, you were now responsible for the person. So David is, this is the picture. God is living in a tent called the tabernacle. He calls it temple here. The very presence of God is there. And I want to go dwell in God's tent. Unfortunately, I'm in my own tent out here in the desert. But the one thing I really want is I want to go and hang out with God and see him face to face because he will, he will protect me and he will provide for me because that's what the tent symbolizes. He goes on, he says, for he will conceal me there when troubles come. That's that provision. He will hide me in his sanctuary. That's that protection. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. Again, you think about this. David continually reminds us, this is the picture. The enemy is pressing in. We don't really relate well to that because we don't think of other people per se as our enemy. Maybe someone in the, you know, in your subdivision who's holding the CCNRs when your trash can is a little out one inch beyond or your grass isn't the right height. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe somebody at work that doesn't like you or they're out for your job or whatever. But the truth is we don't think about enemies. Oh yeah, maybe there's a schoolyard bully or something like that. But David is very real with this. And I think it's real with We have people that don't like us. We have people that are against us. Even spiritually, the New Testament, the Bible says that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Now, we have to understand, and this is important for us, is that they're not really the enemy. They're the victim of the enemy. Satan himself, that's our enemy. And he'll use a lot of things to attack us. And that the powers that we fight against are not the people, but it's flesh and not flesh and blood. It's the spiritual struggle that's going on all around us we don't see. That's really our enemy. But it's very real. And David sees it because he's got people attacking him. He says, then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me at his sanctuary. I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord's music. Now, if you've got an enemy looking for you and you're hiding out at night, you don't dance and shout and make a bunch of music, right? That's not, that's pretty foolish. But David says, when I get with God, that's what I want to do. Let's continue on in this. He says, hear me as I pray, O Lord, be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. One of the things you discover about David in his life is that his faith, his faith in God, his faith in the God of the future that he hasn't experienced yet, the promises but that are not yet fulfilled, really comes because he spends time with God. He knows God face to face. He carves out time to be with God. David wrote so many of the Psalms. I mean, you think about uh, Psalm 23, the famous one, right? He talks about how he views God as a shepherd, as a caregiver, who provides for him, who gives him all the nourishment, the streams, the grass, the fields, things like that, who keeps him close to him in the dark, dark valleys of life, who then, in the middle of all the enemies pressing around, sets a table for him so that David could feast with God in the middle of all this oppression. To shame the enemies because God is blessing him. David knows that because he knows God personally. And I would urge you, my friends, I don't know what your life is like. Mine's crazy busy, okay? It is. But if you can carve out time, quiet time to be with God every day, you will grow to have the heart of David. You will grow to have the perspective of David. You will grow to have the relationship that David had when later on it says, he's a man after my own heart. That doesn't happen by accident. That's not like a drive-by devotional, my friends. That's when you say, I'm going to say no to other things. And I'm going to say yes to this, which is carved out time with God. Man, if there's one thing I could say in my life is spend time with God. It'll change your life. Read his word. Pray with him. Pray through the list. Get to know him. Just be quiet before him. Walk with him. It will change your life. Develop intimacy with this God. That's why David has faith in spite of all that he sees around him. That's why he's not going to panic. Because he's been with God and God has been with him. He says this. He says, I think in a moment maybe of doubt, which I experience at times. You know, my heart has heard you say, come, that's great. But now don't turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. God wouldn't do that, but he feels it, right? You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Look what he says as he goes on. Again, teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath, they threaten me with violence. Some of you can understand that today. Some of you here in this room, you know what it's like to feel threatened with violence, whether physically, 
whether emotionally, whether spiritually, relationally, whether it's real or perceived, it's very huge. He says, yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. And then he wraps up the psalm with these words. I believe in encouragement for you and for me. So here's the sum. Here's the final. Here's the total statement that I just like to close with. David says, in effect, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Now, David can say this because if you've ever studied his life, that's how he lived. Did he have problems? Absolutely. Did he falter and fail? In huge ways. But David was a man who saw God show up in his life. One of the reasons David could trust in God when enemies are all around him is because God had shown himself faithful in the past. Think about his life. The first time we see David, he's just a young man. And he shows up on the scene bringing a lunch to his brothers who beat him up basically verbally because all he wants to do is see the enemy. And David's being picked on. He's being pestered. And he sees this giant out there, Goliath, who is terrorizing all of God's people, including the king who should be out there fighting. And David has total faith in God. And he says these words, you know, God's going to be with me because God has already been with me. I mean, I've already killed lion and bear and I've already fought off attackers for my dad's sheep. I have total confidence and I can take this giant down. And he goes and picks up five smooth stones and he goes out there. He pushes aside Saul's armor. Hey, Saul, wear your own armor. You go out and fight the enemy. He's not going to do that. David with one stone slays a giant. And David knows that that God is still with him. That God who has fought all his battles for him is right there. little side note, I love this. If you study the mighty men of David at the end of his life, it it describes all these people. All the giant killers listed in the Bible are in David's mighty men. Why? Because they followed a giant killer. Here's a little business lesson. If you're not willing to slay a giant, you're not going to get people around you that are willing to slay a giant. Saul had no giant killers. Why? Because Saul was a wimp. Saul lived in fear. He wasn't a giant killer. But David was a giant killer, not because he was strong, but because his God was strong. God had already shown up faithful, faithful, faithful. And in this moment, he says, in spite of my surroundings, in spite of all of the things that should cause me panic and fear, I choose to trust in God. Because he's going to be there again, because he's already proven himself faithful. We have fear and we have hope. And they're opposite. Now, they both can motivate our lives, right? We can be motivated by fear. Fear is a good motivator. It's not positive, but it's negative. It'll move you, right? It'll usually move you backwards. It'll cause you to to shut down. But fear is a powerful motivator. Fear is like that reminder, that repetitive video that plays in our mind, that tape that plays over and over again. That reminder, that little message of you're a failure. You're not going to make it this time. This is going to stay with you forever. They're never going to do this. They're never going to like you. He's never going to like you. She's never going to stay with you. This is what's going on. You are a total failure. If you look at your past, you're no more than that and you will fail. That's what fear does for us. It's that repetitive message that there isn't a God that loves you and you're on your own and you can't do anything about it. But hope, on the other hand, is this reminder that God has been there. God has been faithful. God has shown up. God has written his words for you. God is speaking. God is intimate with you. You've walked with him. You've known him. You can rely on this God who's already been your light, already been your salvation, already been your fortress, already been your strong rock, because you know him as Yahweh. You know him as a close, intimate, personal God. And yes, it looks bleak. 
But you know what? It's going to be bright because God is going to be there for you. Now, we have a choice, though, to be frank. We have a decision to make. We're going to have fear. We're going to have hope. We're going to stress out and have anxiety. I'm lying there in the bed that night. And it's rising up and the panic is rising. And I made a decision, just like I did that day out in the water, to stop, quit panicking, clear my mask, start to breathe. Breathing's important, you know. Get a hold of myself and figure this out. And David does it because he knows that God has been there with him. But you can worry if you want. You can be filled with anxiety if you choose to. The Apostle Paul says this to the Philippian believers very clearly, beautifully. Don't worry about anything. You know, that's a command. Don't worry about anything. I told somebody once, um, you're a worry wart and that's sin. That wasn't very nice of me to say that, but I was tired of the worry. I was tired of the crises. It's like you're worrying. You're commanded not to worry. Instead of worrying, you should be what? Praying. Don't worry about anything. Are you kidding me, Paul? You have no idea what my life is like. I have it rough right now. Oh, do tell me. I'm in a prison for Jesus. I've been beaten with rods. I've been shipwrecked. Tell me your story because when you're done, I got a story to tell you. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything, my friends. Instead, pray about everything. He says, tell God what you need. And thank him for all he has done. See, he's been faithful there. Remind yourself of that. Have a prayer list, but have a praise list too. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So you have a choice. You're either going to worry or you're going to pray. You can have fear and anxiety or you can have hope in God. You have a choice. And it's not just a blind faith. Religion is just not some opiate of the masses. It's a true confidence, not in yourself, Not in your faith, but in God, the object of your faith. And you can put your trust there because he's shown himself to be a faithful God. And if you're young in your faith, maybe you haven't experienced it yet. Go to some older people of the faith. They'll tell you this is a God that's faithful. Yeah, there'll be problems in life, but you will discover with this God, he will show up again and again and reveal himself as a good, loving, heavenly father that wants his best for you. Doesn't mean life will be without problems. Not even close doesn't mean you're not going to have stress but in those moments you'll have a choice to run to fear or to run to hope and to god and to pray it's been said and i love it those of us who worry we're living like practical atheists yeah that's a nice christian message you know but if you don't believe you're going to worry but if you put your faith in god there's no cause for worry About a month ago, I was on Facebook and I was looking at a friend's post. It was a very lengthy post. I was really impressed. A sunrise gal, and she started sharing this story. And as I'm walking down the story, I'm really moved. So I comment on it, thank her for that. I sent her a private message and I said, would you be willing to share that with Sunrise? I know you already shared it with the world, but now you got to share it at your church, you know? And she said yes. And this last week, my wife and I got her in front of a camera, tied her down. She shared her story. And it is amazing. I want you to look at Susan Mitchell's story right now. Hi, my name is Susan, and uh, this is my story. In September of 2014, just had taken the kids to school, and my husband and I were on a walk, and I said to him, my feet feel kind of funny. And he 
just kind of was like, oh, okay. Uh, throughout the day, I kept saying, my feet feel really funny. <laughs> and, uh, and my husband's a physician, and he's like, oh, it's no big deal. You probably have plantar fasciitis. The previous year, I had actually done three half marathons and was really working on getting in shape. And sure, I had a lot of miles on my feet, and so maybe that was the problem. Uh, a couple more days go by, and now my feet are tight. They're continuing to be numb, and the fear and anxiety and panic is beginning to rise in me. I think this is of God, but my first thought was that I had MS. Um, we had a friend who had previously um, been diagnosed with MS and actually had been gone through some serious treatment recently, and so that was already on my mind. Uh, when I mentioned it to my husband, of course he said, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> But that did not help my fear or my anxiety. So if you rewind, let's say six months, I was at uh, the women's retreat at Sunrise Church. And at the end of the retreat, they gave us envelopes and three by five cards and told us to uh, write down a takeaway from uh, the retreat, something that meant something to us. I vaguely remember the incident. I jotted something down, slipped in the envelope, and sent it on its way. The prayer team had told us that they would send this back to us when they prayed and felt that it was the right time. So three days into this whole issue with my feet, I'm making dinner. I remember the anxiety in me was high. My hands were shaking. My husband's opening the mail and I'm standing there stirring something. And he says, here, I've got something for you. And there was my envelope addressed to me in my handwriting. I open it up. And inside, on the 3 by 5 card, what I had written to myself was, do not let the weed of fear keep you from experiencing all that God has for you. And I was in shock and in awe of God that he would actually speak to me so clearly and so poignantly right when I needed it. That note to myself um, from God basically was my assurance that he was going to walk with me through whatever was to come. So after that day, you fast forward a couple of months and I've seen uh, my, my regular physician, I've seen a podiatrist, um, both rolled their eyes when I said I thought I had a mess. Fast forward again uh, to a trip. We uh, were going on vacation. At this point, the, the numbness, the pain in my legs is all the way up into my thighs. And I'm at this point very convinced that there's something wrong with me. Thankfully, my uh, general practitioner listened to what I had to say and she referred me to a neurologist. In the meantime, she said, let's get a brain MRI uh, and see what's going on in there. That came back normal, which I was very relieved that it was normal. But unfortunately, when I did meet with a neurologist, he said, oh, well, if you've got issues with your legs, then that would be not your brain, that would be your spine. So once we did that test, it did come back with a lesion in my spine. Um, a lumbar puncture also confirmed that I did have MS. During this time also, God really spoke to me through my fear. When you have a diagnosis that's unknown, like MS is, because every day is unknown of uh, what's gonna come next, uh, I was laying in bed one night, feeling the panic and the fear rise in me again, even though I'm saying, do not let fear, do not let fear keep you from experiencing all that God has for you. So as I'm laying there in the night, hands shaking, going, what's, what does this mean for my future? Uh, I reached for my Bible app on my phone, and I opened it up, and the verse that was there, was Jeremiah 29:11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And those words could not have been any more appropriate or perfect for what I was going through in that moment. His plan was not to harm me. 
And I did have a hope and I did have a future regardless of what MS was going to do to me. He had a plan for my life and that was exactly what I needed in that moment. God's Word is an invaluable tool in everybody's life. Um, I can't imagine what I would do if I had not read that verse in that moment. Despair could have taken over, anxiety, fear could have grown inside of me, but instead I go to God's Word and He's got a word for me. Don't ever stop going to His Word for strength, for comfort. And in closing, I guess what I really want to say is God also uses His people. And in my life, God used my husband. In the beginning of all this, I was laying in bed with him crying and apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry for what this is going to do to our family and for what it's going to mean for our life. And as he held me, he looked at me and he said, maybe it'll be better. <laughs> and that is exactly what I want you to hear today. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're feeling, God has what you are in for a reason. And maybe, just maybe, whatever stress, anxiety you're feeling is because God wants to make your life better. Wow. Appreciate Susan for being willing to share her story. It's, you're a tough audience, so video is a lot easier, but um, it's great. And um, we've already had people that uh, wanted to connect with her who are walking through that journey. But whatever journey you're walking through, we have people all around us that are walking through the same thing or have walked through it. And we want to be the family of God. We want to be the church, the people who reach out to each other and serve one another in love. On the way out, I'd encourage you to grab the sermon notes, and not because you need to read what I just said, but because on the back is a little set of questions that could help you process through this this week through Psalm 27. Hopefully you meet with a group. Maybe you're in some small group. You're some friends or family. Or even on your own, you could grab these and walk through this. What I'd like to do as Pastor Aaron comes and to lead us in worship before we go to communion is I'd like for us to pray, and I'd like to pray for you. So if you'd take a moment to stand up, and I want to pray for you as Sunrise Church. So Father God, uh, fear is a very real thing. There's a whole lot of reasons out there today to be afraid. We can count them, Lord, whether it's natural disasters, interpersonal disasters, Father, financial struggles, just a lack of hope in the future. Maybe even our faith has faltered. God, we can have a lot of fear, but I pray today that we would look at you and see you face to face and then get a perspective like David had, that you're our light, you're our salvation, you're our fortress, you're our strong rock, you're the protector, you're the defender. And even though it's very real or maybe imagined the thing in front of us, our enemy, Lord, has no way to attack us if you're protecting us, if you're providing for us. So in David's visual, we want to run into your tent. We want to come face to face with you and gaze at your beauty and see you and know you and worship you as a God who's given everything for us, who's given salvation through Jesus, who's given us your spirit to dwell inside of us, to change us, to comfort us, to walk with us on the journey, who's given us the church, the family of believers all around us, to be a part of this journey together. God, whatever the stress, whatever the worry, whatever the fear, whatever the anxiety, whatever the panic might be about, may we today rest in the confident truth, the absolute rock-solid evidence that you are real and you love us and you've done everything necessary for us. We just need to come to you as our Heavenly Father, climb up on your lap as our Papa Daddy, and cry out to you our need, and you will comfort us. 
and you will embrace us and you'll save us. We pray this in your name. Amen.